This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. I'm Laura Huang, Professor of Entrepreneurship at the Wharton School. I'm here today with Senator Claire McCaskill, who is here to talk to us about her book, Plenty Ladylike. Claire, welcome. Thank you. So excited to have you here. Thank you. So I really enjoyed reading this book. I especially love reading memoirs. And this was a memoir, of course. Um, and I was just curious, what kind of brought you to writing in a memoir? What, what led up to this? Well, my 2012 re-election really had a national profile because my opponent was um, the lame brain who said that the woman's body has a way of shutting itself down if it's a legitimate rape. So the race got a lot of attention, and I had engaged in some really high-risk strategy in that race that I think represents what more women should do Mm -hmm. in their careers, and that is take risks. So I wanted to write the book about that campaign and the strategy I embraced. And then once I got into it, the publisher said, well, your whole career has been full of owning your ambition and being risky. So why don't we tell more stories than just the campaign? So it's really for young women. It's for women um, who are uncomfortable saying they're ambitious. Mm -hmm. It's for women who um, feel that security is more important than getting ahead. Um, It's for women who are facing that moment where they don't know if they should take a risk. Uh, This is supposed to be a gentle push uh, to get more women to be risk takers. Yeah, and I kind of love that that was this theme throughout the book, was that you're very ambitious and you you create this really interesting narrative about how you're almost unapologetic about this, um, but also admitting some things in there that a lot of people would be very apologetic admitting. So one of my favorite anecdotes is from one of the earlier chapters where you talk about how um, a failure to make a cheerleading squad then uh, launched you into this campaign, one of your first campaigns. Uh, So can you tell us a little bit about that high school campaign that you you underwent? Sure. I had been a cheerleader since junior high. I thought it was everything. I uh, didn't make it for my senior year in high school, and I thought the world was over. Uh, And so I began a stealth campaign that I've never talked about until this book um, because what I decided was I could be homecoming queen. So I describe in the book um, how I went about campaigning for Homecoming Queen. I did the math. I figured out that the Homecoming Queen every year was the girlfriend of the quarterback or the co-captain. Well, there's only a couple of those, but there's a lot of linemen. Um, there's a lot of tackles and guards and linebackers and, and guys in the secondary. So I began making friends with um, the people that weren't the quarterback. And as it turned out, it worked. Uh, They ended up voting for me for homecoming queen. And I was, of course, embarrassed and am still kind of embarrassed that I did that. But I wanted to tell the story because I thought it was an example of how you can embrace um, a strategy and get something done. And in the process, I made a lot of friends I wouldn't have made otherwise. So it ended up being a win-win. A lot of those linemen are my friends to this day. But I also figured out how to do the math in a political campaign. So I love that story because I was a cheerleader in high school, but I was not homecoming queen. So now I'm thinking, hey, I could have actually there you go. done something. See? Exactly. So the, that kind of illustrates also that one of the themes was 
that there's ups and downs. So all through your career, these, there's been these ups, these incredibly high highs, but also these incredibly low lows. And you know, as you read the book, there's this narrative of everything seems to build on each other. Is this something that you really thought about in terms of your career, that there's these ups and downs and just navigating these waves? Or is this something more in retrospect that you really, as you were reflecting, um, pieced together in this very cohesive narrative? At the time, I don't think I thought of it as ups and downs. I was very focused on a goal, and I was just driving towards that goal. And every problem I encountered, especially some of the sexism I encountered early in my career, when I went to the state legislature in my 20s, I used that as fuel yeah. um, rather than confront it perhaps as I should have. I internalized it and said, I'm going to show them. I'm going to show them. I will be better than they are. I will go farther than they're going to go. I will achieve um, what I thought was going to be my ultimate accomplishment, which was governor of Missouri. As it turned out, I lost that race. Um, but because I lost that race, I went on to win the Senate seat. So I guess looking back, it is. And of course, I put all my personal stuff in there, my divorce and the problems um, with my first marriage. So it does you know, have the ups and downs. Right. But to me at the time, it was just me headed towards right. something I wanted very much. So let's talk a little bit about that fuel, right? Because there's also this this uh, ambition versus um, this femininity sort of balance that you have within the book as well, right? Um, you had said at one point in the book, I managed to achieve a delicate balance of being tough, but with a softer approach, right? So talk to us a little bit about that femininity, right? The, you know, you said, I'm used to people approaching me to talk not about my job, but how I look, and that sort of thing, and how you balance that with your ambition. Well, I, I think, um, I, I say in the book, I'm not sure I did it right. I, I, and that's one thing I want to stress. I think there's way too many women who write books who have accomplished things in their life that do it almost looking down, like, this is how I did all that. I, hey, I, I don't get it right every day. I didn't get it right in my life many times. And perhaps when I was confronted, especially with some of the cruel sexism early in my career, it would have been better for me to be brave enough to be more confrontational. At the time, I thought it was going to hurt my career. Mm. So instead, I used a sense of humor. Um, I became very good at self-deprecating humor. Um, I became... Uh, very good at laughing with my male colleagues, uh, even though sometimes those jokes were at my expense. I was willing to endure that because I thought if I came on too strong, it would limit my effectiveness, especially in a legislative body, when how you get along with others mm -hmm. um, is, so is very important right. in terms of your ability to accomplish the goals that you set out to accomplish. So uh, it really was this mix of... Um, spine of steel, but a big smile and willing to laugh um, at sometimes even at jokes that hurt. And that whole time, you really stressed being prepared and working hard, right? I noticed a lot throughout the book how hard you actually worked. Um, it was almost a crash course in politics because I didn't understand actually how much went into these campaigns and how much work went into a lot of the investigative things that you had done. So in terms of preparation, 
right? Talk to us a little bit about how you prepare and how you've prepared throughout your career and what hard work means to you as a woman who both has ambition and this femininity side. Well, it's interesting. I don't know that it's as much of a challenge for young women today, but because there are more women. Mm -hmm. There are more women at Wharton. Right. There are more women in law school. There are more women in med school. There are more women, although still not enough women, in boardrooms and still not enough women that are CEOs. Uh, there are role models out there. When I began in politics, when I began in the prosecutor's office as a trial prosecutor, there were really no women around to speak of that I could see as my role models. So it, it really was um, trying to go along, to get along, but I was always sure that if I knew more, that I could have credibility. So the fact that I was a prosecutor helped counter the fact that I had a lot of long blonde hair. The fact that I knew my way around a courtroom, that I had tried a lot of criminal trials. When I came to Jeff City, that gave me credibility that women sometimes hadn't had coming to Jeff City, perhaps replacing their husbands who had died, or even coming from a more traditional female career. I came with a background that really helped me um, establish myself as someone who was very knowledgeable in criminal law. And that, I think, helped very much me kind of get over the hump of being taken seriously. And even roles you had later on. So there's this famous earmarking speech that you gave where Chuck Schumer said it was one of the top 10 speeches that he had ever heard. That was behind closed doors. Can you give us a little bit of insight into that speech? Well, I, you know, I, <laughs> I, I earmarks, um, you know, the short definition of earmarks is it's congressionally directed spending. The longer definition was that pe senators and congressmen would go behind closed doors and sprinkle fairy dust to decide where we were going to spend money. Mm -hmm. And it was usually based on how senior you were, what party you were, what committee you served on. So I was sitting in caucus one day, and someone was with righteous indignation saying how great earmarks were, and I just had enough. I had just had enough, and I just stood up and said, hey, all you appropriators love them because you get most of them. And I just basically kind of did five minutes of um, me going off in a passionate way about all the flaws of the earmarking system and how it wasn't based on merit and how in many ways it represented the worst of what Washington does because it's all about who you know, not the merit of the project. And so I um, uh, that, that was uh, a time that after that speech, um, our caucus decided to not do earmarks. And so there, it's, that's a, a great example of you really being you, being true to yourself, being really authentic. Um, you said in the book, I've seen people go to Washington and lose their sense of purpose and their sense of self. Right? And that's very easy to do because you're in this, uh, you're in this field that's um, you're facing lots of constituents. You have internal, external people that you're dealing with. So, you know, you mentioned earlier in terms of you being yourself, but also having to to manage your colleagues, your the people you're dealing with. How did you do that? How were you able to to manage this very fine sort of balance? This well, you got to get comfortable that everybody's not going to like you. You know, I talk about in the book in the last chapter uh, the disease to appease. And I think women have a, a much more serious case of the disease to appease sometimes than men. I think we all, I mean, I, I want everyone to like me. And most people who go into politics 
really want everyone to like them <laughs> because they've chosen a career where you put yourself out for public acceptance or rejection every two, four, or six years. So it, it's hard to get used to the fact that people don't like you, but you can't get anything done if you don't make somebody mad. It's impossible to get anything done without angering someone. So you've just got to get comfortable. I mean, when I gave that speech, there were people in my caucus that were furious. That Like, who does she think she is? And probably some of them think that to this day. <laughs> but that's okay. Um, you don't have to have everybody like you. Uh, obviously, you need to take care of your family and your good friends and try to make friends. But it shouldn't be a kind of exercise where you're trying to please everyone all the time. That's why people are so sick of Washington. Well, why do you think it's so difficult for women especially to to be okay with that? To, you know, so women really want people to like them. Why do you think it's there is this gender difference? I think we're natural negotiators. I, I mean, we have strengths that men don't have. I think we are more conciliatory. I mean, I, in speeches to women, I like to talk about, um, I give speeches to men sometimes, and I have men raise their hands. When have you ever had the nerve to punch somebody? Had, when have you had the feeling you wanted to punch somebody? And it's surprisingly common among men. It's not that common among women. Mm. So there is not that combativeness um, that sometimes I think gets in the way with men. Um, I think women can be hyper-competitive, but I think there is a, a desire to kind of sugarcoat it and say, oh, I really want you to get it too, or, you know, I want you to be my friend, and oh, I want us to get along, instead of powering through a situation and trying to just get something done, even if it means um, stepping on toes. So let's talk a little bit about that, women supporting other women, versus women not wanting to support other women because they want to, um, you know, still be in that finite population. You told a story in the book about um, you were a young uh, state representative and you wore a leather skirt into an event um, and somebody had asked uh, at the party, who is that person? Um, and they told, they said, that's a state representative. And they said, well, who is the tramp that she's with? That he's, that with, he's with. That he's right. with. Um, and, you know, and that kind of illustrates that some women, and that was a woman who was asking this, this question. So some women are very, that want to be mentors and supporters of other women. And then I'm sure you found that other women have not been as, as supportive. Can you talk a little bit about that dichotomy? I, it's interesting. And I, it's such a waste of energy. Um, but I think women are hard on other women. Now, don't get me wrong. I talk about this in the book. I'm not saying that women should give other women a pass. Uh, I think women um, have to compete on merit, and no one should be entitled to get a job or to get a promotion or to win an election because they're a woman. Um, but if a woman is, um, it, it's almost as if sometimes women try to find flaws with other women. And I don't know where it comes from, but I know it's negative, and I know it's not a pretty place where it comes from. Um, and I think it's, um, I've tried in my career to bite my tongue when I want to be hypercritical of other women, because there is this tendency to, I think, do that. And I, I just want women to realize that we need to support each other. It's especially important if you're in a male-dominated field. I talk about the queen bee syndrome, mm. where when I went to the legislature, there were some women who were really wanting to mentor me and help me. And there were other women who were very 
uh, standoffish and undermine me. And so, uh, you know, women get to choose which they want to be. And I just right. hope more and more women choose the nurturing, mentoring um, colleague as opposed to uh, she's my competitor. They maybe will only take one woman. Can I cut her off at the knees? Right. And this, it's very hard in such a demanding sort of arena. Um, and you've had a lot of demands placed on you. And one of the things that I also reflected on as I was reading your book was that the number of times where you were able to remain calm and have grace under pressure. Um, there's one instance where um, you, you spoke about um, when Barack Obama was pulling out of Missouri and you said, well, I have given so much and I have, and you basically went into another room, calmed yourself down, and then came back out and gave that argument. Now that's really difficult to do. How have you been able to, to do that when you, when you are faced with these extreme sorts of pressure situations where you just want to explode? Um, how do you actually step back and calm yourself down? Well, I, you know, I don't know. I think it's um, probably how goal-oriented I am. Um, I think part of that is owning your ambition. Um, because I was ambitious and mm -hmm. comfortable with being ambitious, everything f was really, will this help me reach my goal? And sometimes being histrionic or letting your emotions show too much. I'm not saying that you have to be, you know, the Iron Lady or not have feelings. I think, frankly, being vulnerable is part of being a more attractive candidate um, for, especially for bigger jobs in politics, uh, so people can relate to you. But you also have to be careful that you don't um, allow the emotional moment get in the way of your ability to communicate. Uh, because at the end of the day, um, if you fail to communicate, especially if you're in political office, then you fail at your job. So speaking of vulnerability, what makes you nervous? You've seen so much now. What still kind of gives you the jitters that you feel like you have to do that extra set of preparation for that really makes you nervous going out to do? Anything that well, comes to I, mind? I think I, I, when I'm speaking on behalf of others, um, I've done a lot of surrogacy work. I did a lot of work for Barack Obama when he ran for president. Uh, I debated Carly Fiorina on Meet the Press. She was representing John McCain. I was representing Barack Obama. I'm trying to help Hillary Clinton right now. Um, it's one thing when I'm speaking for me, but when you're trying to represent um, a candidate you believe in, you want to be extra careful and cautious that you don't end up making a gaffe that hurts them. Mm. So I think that probably is where I try to be um, not too careful, because then you're not authentic, but careful that I don't um, mix that I'm speaking to help uh, another candidate as opposed to necessarily um, trying to push my own agenda. And that's, that's hard. But I, I really have gotten to the point now that I don't mind making mistakes. I'm comfortable making mistakes. My mouth has gotten me in trouble so many times. <laughs> well, speaking of which, has Hillary forgiven you? Uh, yeah, no, <laughs> she's fine. Um, uh, yeah, we're fine. And uh, the, the Clinton family, um, we're fine. I think um, uh, they understand that, you know, I've, I apologize for saying a comment that was gratuitous and painful and hurtful to them, mm -hmm. which I shouldn't have done. But I have at least getting in trouble a lot for saying exactly what I think kind of now um, makes me really comfortable um, saying what I think, knowing that um, I try not to make mistakes. But if I do, if you say you're sorry and you're genuine about it, people are pretty forgiving. Yeah. 
Okay, so the last question I have for you is really in terms of this balance um, and this authenticity, what is your philosophy on motherhood? You've raised three children, um, you have stepchildren, you have lots of grandchildren. You know, are you a strict mother? How, how have you really balanced this in terms of your career and, and being a mother, your other important role? Well, I think uh, one thing I try to do in the book, and I want women who are working um, to get this part, uh, you know, m mothers who don't work outside the home are not perfect, and mothers who do work outside the home are not mm -hmm. perfect. There is not a perfect mother. Um, mothers are like snowflakes. They're all different. And what you do is you prioritize your children in ways that are meaningful. And for me, I managed my guilt by um, really not sweating the small stuff. I forgot about the dust bunnies under the bed, even though um, my mother-in-law would test tusk when she'd come over. Sometimes my kids' clothes weren't pressed like mine were when I was a little girl. Um, and But that's okay. Uh, I asked my kids when I was writing this book, what did you, how did you suffer because of my work? Tell me what, what I failed you. I want to know now that you're grown. Mm -hmm. What hurt? Mm -hmm. And um, Lily goes, well, Willie, my youngest child said, well, Willie, Mom, the only thing I remember is that I always had Lunchables right. for lunch right. instead of a homemade well. sandwich. Right. Now, I don't know if she was trying to make me feel okay. Right, and or, she said she actually liked it. She, she said, said because everybody wanted yes. to trade for her yes. Lunchables. Right. Now, I'm not sure if that's true or if she was trying to make me feel good as, as a grown child and a mom who... Uh, adores her, and I hope she adores me. But either way, I figure the parenting turned out okay. Because either she wanted to make me feel better, which means she was... You raised her with the values. Right, with empathy and understanding <laughs> right. how other people feel, or um, the Lunchables weren't that big a deal. So I, I think that um, politics has a lot of flexibility for women in terms of their schedules. And I think there are too many women that shy away from politics mm -hmm. because they're worried about having a family and what they see as the dirty, rotten world of political life. And I hope this book um, tells some young, aspiring women politicians that they can be great moms and have a full personal life and also go out there and get some stuff done in the public sector that needs to be done. That's great. And I think this is a real, really nice lesson in balance because I love the way that, you know, even asking you these questions, I see your eyes light up when you talk about your career. And then I ask you about your family and your eyes light up as well. And so I think that that's a real sign that you've been able to do both of them um, in a really graceful way. So thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.